Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Washington Post staff writer John Woodrow Cox reports on the effects of gun violence on America's children. His book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. He's interviewed by Sonali Rajan, health education associate professor at Teachers College, Columbia University. Hi, John. It's great to see you this morning. Great Um, to be here. So we have about an hour together to talk about your wonderful book, Children Under Fire, which, um, you know, I just wanted to begin actually just with expressing my gratitude to you for writing this book. Um, As a professor who studies this issue, you know, I think about this issue of gun violence and and children's safety every single day. And I'm also a mom to a five-year-old. So there's really not a moment in my day-to-day where I'm not in some way preoccupied with the well-being and safety of children in some way. And even though I think about this issue all the time, your book and your writing just took my breath away. I was reading it and crying and just, I really, I just, it was, it, you humanized this issue in such a powerful way and in, in what I would argue such a needed way. So I just wanted to thank you for, for doing that. Um, thank I have you for actually, that. Um, long followed your work uh, at the Washington Post and I cite your data set all the time and my students are using it in their work. Um, and I wanted to begin actually, if you could share a little bit with us about how you got started in this area of reporting and what motivated you to write this particular book where you're bringing to life the stories of children who have been exposed to gun violence? Uh, first, thank you so much for those kind words. They're really, especially from someone who is so uh, deep into this uh, subject, that means a lot. Uh, you know, I had um, I had written about childhood trauma for a few years at the Post, even before coming to the Post. And uh, my editor at the, at the Post, Linda Robinson, who also uh, later uh, helped edit the book as well. She um, had asked me if I might be interested in a, in a very broad project about children and violence, uh, just because we felt like that was a subject that was really undercovered and had talked about the power of telling stories through kids' eyes, which I think is pretty rare in the media. And uh, so in early 2017, I started to research this, still with that kind of broad idea in mind, very quickly realized that this needed to just be about kids and gun violence. And, and I think it was because for me, I, I, I so suddenly realized that it, we didn't understand the scope 
of this crisis, that our view of it was so limited to just the kids who get shot uh, and who really even among that group, the kids who die. We weren't considering the ripple, the, the, this massive population where it's not hundreds or thousands, it's actually millions of kids. And so the first couple of kids I, I wrote about uh, in this series back in 2017 ended up being the two main subjects of the book. Uh, Taishan, whose father was killed in the middle of D.C., and then Ava, who was just a little girl uh, on a playground when a school shooting occurred. Neither of these kids were you know, physically harmed. And uh, pretty early in that series, I realized that I wouldn't say nearly everything that I had to say uh, in a newspaper article. So I wanted to do something more. And, and it just it, this was really the first time in my career that I felt an obligation to write a book. I just felt like I, this was a duty uh, to do something more. I love this. And I have a couple of questions. I just want to build off of what you were, you're mm -hmm. talking about. So one aspect of your work that my colleagues and I have been writing a lot about on the research side of things. And I just, as I was reading your writing, I was like, yes, exactly. Like nodding along, like this is exactly right. What we, what, how we need to be telling these stories um, is that exposure to gun violence is not just about who gets shot and killed. It's that is one aspect um, tragically of this endemic. And one of the stories, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit with our, our viewers um, that you write about is uh, a little boy, I believe, who was at the school where Jacob was killed, but never actually saw the shooting, um, yes. never witnessed it. I don't even think heard the gunfire, just was in the vicinity of this happening. And I'm wondering if you can tell a little bit for us about, just share a little bit more about that story. Because um, I, I felt like that really beautifully captured and powerfully captured why capturing exposure to gun violence mm -hmm. in all sorts of different ways is so critical. That was one of the, there were a handful of epiphany sort of moments for me, and that was one. It was a fifth grader at uh, Townville Elementary School. To give people a little background, this was a, a shooting that most of us have never heard of because this 14-year-old pulls up on a uh, group of first graders who had just gone outside for recess. He opened fires and his gun jams in 12 seconds. So the whole thing is over very quickly. Only one little boy dies, Jacob. Um, and so I was talking to a pastor uh, there in Townville who was giving, providing some counseling to uh, some of the kids from the school. And he told me this story about a fifth grader who had been on the second floor of the school, uh, had not heard the shots, uh, didn't see the shooter, um, didn't know Jacob, so didn't have any kind of personal relationship with the boy who died. But he had come to believe that the shooter was there specifically to kill him. He was having nightmares about it. He was obsessing about it. He was totally convinced that his life was in danger that day and that he, uh, that the shooter had come to kill him. And it, it illustrated for me this bigger scope. You know, people on the outside, including me, when I first heard about the shooting, we make that calculation that, okay, one kid died, we're going to move on. You know, last just last week, there was a shooting in Knoxville, only one child died, so the country moved on. But what that made me realize is that it, it, the, there were these rings of trauma, you know, it, that the first it was the kids who got shot, and then it was the witnesses, the friends, the family, but then every kid in that school had the potential to be 
derailed. Their entire life could have been derailed from that moment. You know, things like when kids suddenly would hear balloons popping, you know, they would hit the ground uh, uh, just as a, as an automatic response. But this one little boy, his reaction was so compelling to me uh, because he hadn't seen or heard anything. And yet it, it devastated him and, and was inevitably affecting him. any siblings he had cousins, he had parents on and on. So, you know, this was one event, one 12 second event that we calculated as affecting basically one child, the one who died when it in fact affected hundreds of kids and thousands of people. So that, that moment really inspired me to create this database where we, uh, I just started searching for every single school shooting since Columbine to figure out how many kids had been on campuses when those shootings occurred to put this into a more realistic context. And unfortunately that number is about to hit a quarter of a million, a quarter of a million kids who've been through campus shootings since uh, Columbine. It's just staggering. It is staggering. I go back to that data set all the time and you have beautiful, I shouldn't use the word beautiful, but it's a powerful um, graphic on there. Mm -hmm. where you sort of have the data points of the shootings and then you see essentially the extensions of these. And right. one thing I think is really interesting about that particular data set is you're capturing the uh, student exposure, the child exposure to these shootings, but that actually doesn't even then account for on top of that implications for siblings who maybe don't go yeah. to that school for parents, for other community members. So if we really were to think about the scope of this issue, it would, you know, I don't know that we could fully quantify it. And I, right. I think write a lot about that um, in, in our work. One of the things I wanted to highlight, and, and so as, yeah, Ava uh, and uh, Taishan are the two sort of um, uh, perspectives that you so beautifully weave into each chapter of this book. Um, one of the aspects of Taishan's experience is that I found most striking is that he is a child who has had multiple forms of exposure to gun violence. And I think about this quite a bit where maybe we sort of, or the general public, we tend to think about these are one-off events, but there are children and there are communities who are repeatedly impacted, but in different ways. And I'm wondering if you could just share with us a little bit about that and maybe tell um, our viewers a little bit about Taishan in particular. Sure. Yeah. You know, that was another discovery. Taishan was the very first kid who I wrote about um, uh, of having been impacted uh, from gun violence. His father was killed almost four years ago. It was, it was March of 2017. And, uh, you know, by the time I met him, so he was in second grade, by the time I met him, he knew four people personally who had been shot to death. Not heard about, but actually he knew these people. He'd spent time with them. They were friends of his family. He himself had uh, twice come very close to being shot, once uh, just on a, an apartment playground. He was on a slide and the shooting started and his dad's friend tackled him to the ground and covered his body. Another time he was playing video games in his dad's uh, bedroom, somebody started shooting. And by then he knew, you know, dive behind the bed. Uh, you know, the first time I went to his home, there was a bullet hole in the front door. And, you know, he walked right by it. And, and so Taishan, his life had been surrounded by gun violence leading up to then uh, the day when his father was killed. This was in the middle of the day, um, shot to death. He was shot five times in his car and Taishan's school was less than a block away. Uh, when this happened, Taishan later, you know, looked out uh, the window and saw the police lights flashing. 
And, you know, spending all this time, I ended up spending weeks inside this school uh, in Southeast DC. And one of the really compelling moments right away that woke me up to what was happening, this school had asked their students. And, and again, this is a school that only went up to third grade. So these kids are all six, seven, eight years old. They'd asked them if they could describe through pictures violence in their community, things that made them sad in their community. And these kids drew vivid images of bodies, uh, of people being shot to death, of, of gunfights uh, going on, of funerals, uh, gravestones with RIP on them, of, of blood on the ground. And these are not kids who were talking about saying, hey, I'm struggling with my trauma. They weren't verbalizing it. But here they were clearly showing what was on their minds all the time. And it, for me, it illustrated this point that we, we focus so narrowly on the sort of white suburban communities that go through school shootings, when in fact, the kids who are overwhelmingly affected by gun violence, it's that everyday chronic threat that happens largely in black and brown communities in this country, and that we simply do, do not societally, we do not care about as much. I am convinced of that because we don't cover it the same way. We don't, we don't respond to it the same way. We don't shower those kids with support and gifts and therapy and all these things as we do when these school shootings occur. But these are the kids who are living with it every single day. This researcher from Philadelphia told me something that for me was really profound. He found, he, he noticed that uh, he'd spent time in these schools and that kids would come into the school and keep their back to the wall all the time. And he asked them why, and they couldn't even explain it. And of course, you know this, that they're in states of hypervigilance, you know, like when somebody comes back from war and they're constantly on guard. And you know, what that does is it shortens their lifespans, you know, and, and it, it has these really horrible physical effects. But then too, they ask that kid to say, go in there and make A's and B's, you know, go to college have a good life when they think they might die at any moment. It's just so unreasonable. And, and that's really what Tyshawn's story made clear for me. That connection between perceptions of safety and the expectations we have in school spaces is how I got interested in this work because we're asking kids to do so much every single day. There's expectations of them to learn and perform and, you know, engage with their peers and their teachers and, there's, if children fundamentally don't feel safe, then everything else is a wash, you know? And so I, um, I appreciate you, you talking through that connection. Cause I just think that's so important and so much of education policy disappointingly doesn't account for the connections to well-being and to these histories of trauma, which impact, as you just said, six, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, um, which is, deeply, deeply tragic. I'm wondering if in that vein, we could talk a little bit about um, sort of this anticipation of violence. And I'm, I'm gonna shift just a little bit. I'm gonna come back to a couple of things, but one of the ways, directions I wanna take our conversation, if that's okay, is to talk a little bit about how schools are currently, and you talk about this in your book, um, how schools are currently responding to the anticipation of int uh, intentional gun violence. And you do, you have a book um, 
it, you have a book, you have a chapter. Uh, I think this is the one that's called this as $29,000 a kid, um, where you talk about the business of school security. And this is an area that I'm, my colleagues and I are, are particularly interested in studying and, and thinking through, but I'd love for you to share with our viewers, um, just a little bit about that. How are schools currently responding to these possible threats? So, you know, it, it, with panic, largely, uh, is the way they're responding. And, and it's become this $3 billion plus industry of, you know, these private for-profit companies who see a financial opportunity. And many of them, uh, I, I'm sure that many do have good intentions. Many are clearly there to take advantage of the fear that these schools have, the fear and desperation. Because what we what we lack is really proven methods to say, uh, how do we protect a school from a school shooting? And that sort of, there's two elements there. There's the one about sort of the, the physical security, you know, the technology, uh, all those things where a lot of that money is. And then the other is the training the how do you know the uh, the drills and how do we prepare and all of it is just totally haphazard it's just uh it's the wild west i, I went to this conference that chapter uh, focuses largely on this conference that i went to in orlando just right outside disney and you know i walk into this big banquet hall and this jimmy buffett cover band is playing and there was just sort of this giddiness and this was shortly after parkland and, you know, they had more vendors than they'd ever had before. And there was just this uh, sort of nauseating level of excitement about, uh, oh, we're really going to push some product on these superintendents. And, you know, there was this one woman who uh, had a, a basically a, a bleeding control kit. It was a, a tourniquet. And to illustrate how easy it was, she had a six-year-old uh, put it on her arm. And she told me this story as a way to say, look how, look how uh, simple our product is to use. Nobody in the room sort of had that perspective to say, look, for, for your industry to exist and thrive and grow, kids have to continue being murdered in their schools. And nobody was kind of reckoning with that reality. They just wanted to, to really sell their products. And I'm sure that some of those products would work. Uh, you know, some of them seemed a bit outlandish. There were, um, you know, bulletproof backpacks uh, that they were selling. There were these whiteboards that had, you know, drawings of animals on them. And then they were also meant to stop AK-47 rounds. Uh, there was one guy who was a former special operations agent who had proposed this idea to um, embed, sort of like the movie Kindergarten Cop, he, he wanted to embed uh, special ops agents in schools who are posing as like gem teachers and they would be armed the whole time so that they could, you know, more accurately shoot the gunman uh, and they could sort of buddy up with the troubled kids. And there were just all of the, and, and nobody had any evidence that what their ideas worked. No evidence. It was just, Hey, I think this is a good idea. And so I'm going to sell it for $30,000 to, uh, this, uh, you know, school superintendent. And the, the, where the chapter title comes from is this one guy who had this very elaborate uh, sort of metal detection, gun detection system that as kids walked into the school, they would step into this chamber and it would identify whether they had a gun. And uh, he was recounted trying to sell this to a, a superintendent. It was the whole system was like half a million dollars. And, and the superintendent sort of balked at that number. And the guy 
had done the math in his head. He divided what his product cost by the number of people who had been shot to death in Parkland. And he was sort of saying, well, you know, don't you think those parents would pay this amount of money to have their child back? And it was just, it was just uh, infuriating, really, in a lot of ways to hear. And then, too, that led me into this universe of uh, the Alice drills. And, and, you know, and the most controversial aspect of that is this, uh, the C in the Alice acronym stands for counter. And that's where they're training schools to train their kids to attack the gunman, to confront the gunman themselves. And again, there's no evidence whatsoever that these techniques actually save kids' lives. But we do know that kids who've confronted shooters have been shot to death. So, uh, you know, what we desperately need are best practices, you know, and that's, uh, you know, why so much of the book is about, hey, let's spend money on research so that we can figure these things out. Because right now, every school district's just figuring out on their own. You know, one school district gave out, I'm sure you heard about this one, the, the buckets of rocks that they were going to stone the gunman, you know, it just was, absurd, just absurd. It is absurd. That was in line with, um, I want to say it was um, the university, maybe it was Michigan State or who at some point had handed out hockey pucks um, yeah. to students. Um, right. There was, you know, all sorts of stories you see like that. And um, I'm obviously biased because this is my area of research. So I'm a hundred percent in agreement that we do need research federally funded, ideally federal resources invested in good quality, rigorous scientific research to actually establish whether any of these types of strategies are truly effective at deterring intentional gun violence in these ways. And it is true, the the large majority of schools, and I, you know, I struggle with this, again, just as a parent, of course, you would like a school to be structured in a way that they are set up and equipped to do everything possible to stop that kind of shooting in the moment. But with that being said, as you're describing, the exposure to these sorts of um, strategies or policies or tactics, however we want to call them, on the well-being of children, sort of conditioning them to anticipate this kind of violence, just the way you say they move their backs, sort of they they walk with their back against the wall, um, that's internalized trauma. And so to see that play out in hundred, we have about 100,000 K through 12 schools in this country, public schools in this country, to see that play out in a way that impacts millions of kids is so disconcerting. And I, I think your book, again, just humanizes that, that work and these, these challenges. I do, I am curious what you think about, there is some um, interesting research, re- relatively recent, that has talked about the effectiveness of, um, lockdown drills, not the Alice types of drills, but more thoughtfully done lockdown drills on at least um, allowing students and school staff to to feel prepared. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on on that line of work. You know, so from our own research into these school shootings, we know that the schools that are prepared and have uh, done this in a sort of thoughtful way, uh, the preparation has absolutely saved lives before. Uh, so I think there there is certainly value in uh, trauma-informed, thoughtful preparation that takes into account, hey, let's not do more harm than good. And what we, what we know absolutely is that the adults in the room, the teachers and staff, they need to be trained really thoroughly. We know that without any question. And I, I do think there's strong evidence that some basic training 
on, um, hey, if we, you know, you didn't have to, I think, associate it with a gunman, just, just especially with younger children, just saying, if we have an emergency, this is, this is what we'll do. You know, the problem for so many school districts is they don't have any kind of graduated response. So, you know, they go from zero to a thousand because there's a, a shooting uh, two miles away, right? Where they, they, instead of locking the doors and just saying, hey, we're going to skip recess today, they huddle everybody in a corner and turn the lights off, which for those kids triggers memories of Parkland, triggers these things they've seen on TV, leads many of those kids to then think, oh, I could get shot in my in my school. But I think there's there, there is very strong evidence that um, that some sort of preparation is, is really necessary. You know, school shootings are rare, but in a normal school shooting, normal year, we're going to see somewhere between maybe 10 and 20 school shootings a year. Uh, there was one specific case I often think about in California where they were really prepared. They got the doors shut, locked everybody in. And this guy came with uh, a, 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 you know, a semi-automatic rifle with extended magazines. He fired hundreds of rounds. No one died. There was one boy who was shot through a wall. But this was a case that this could have been another Parkland kind of case if they had not been prepared and responded really quickly. So I think there's value. We just need to be much, much more thoughtful in the way that school districts uh, train uh, teachers, but especially their kids, so that they're not doing more harm than good. Good, I fully, I fully agree. Um, you know, I kind of, I'm just going to kind of continue our conversation a little mm -hmm. bit in, in terms of talking about prevention. And we, you talked about, and and again, this is in the book where you you uh, think through prevention in the moment of the shooting. And then also prevention, as you're describing, preparation and drills, so that there's sort of two ways in which we think about prevention. But there's also something to be said for, and again, your work touches on this, investing in sort of upstream causes or root causes of, of violence that actually one would never associate with the term gun control um, and really maybe have nothing to do with access to firearms, but are really about investments in communities, in housing, in green space, in public education. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around, and we're going to get to the legislation piece in a little bit, but I'm wondering if just given the polarizing nature of this issue and you say the word firearm or they say the word gun and it immediately brings, you know, sort of one side or the other. But there are so there are so many ways in which we can invest in communities where we're getting at the root causes of violence and we're right. breaking those cycles of disenfranchisement. And so I'm just wondering if you can share with us a little bit your thoughts around that, um, and maybe even how some of the stories that Ava shares that Tyshawn share are wrapped into some of that. Absolutely, you know we um, we can't expect people who are. Uh, living in chronic poverty to not at times feel desperate. And that often leads, you know, I've done this work now for years. I've talked to people of all ages and, uh, you know, many of them at very young ages turned to dealing drugs because they were going to get evicted because their parents needed help uh, because they had no money and they saw their friends making money and, uh, so much of it just begins with, you know, and in many of these places, guns or drugs and uh, territory and those sorts of things um, fuel the the trafficking of guns into those cities. So you, to that root cause, I mean, there are, I think, in this country, 
uh, and especially in those kind of communities, there are two root causes. One is the guns. One is the is the fact that we have 400 million guns in this country. That's what makes us different than every other developed nation. We have laws that are bad at regulating those guns, and we have lots of them. But the other absolutely is that uh, people in those communities often see uh, no other way out except to take these really significant risks to try to make a little bit of money. Uh, and often uh, they already think they're not going to live beyond their 19th or 20th birthday. One chapter goes deep into that. These kids, when they get into their teenage years, they talk about uh, if I grow up. It's not when I grow up, this is what I wanna do, it's if I grow up. If that is your belief as a, as, a, as a child or a young teen or an older teen, what do you have to lose than to pick up a gun and try to you know, make some money? So we have to address it there. We there there needs to be jobs. You know, the, the one street that Tyshawn you know went to school on and where his father lived. You know, they had six shootings in in one week leading up to his father's death. On that same street, though, you know, there's nowhere to work. There was a corner store. Uh, there were no grocery stores. Uh, there was just so there. You know, they'd shut down the um, community center where kids could go play. You know, so often these kids just end up being stuck in their homes playing video games because that's where their parents think they're going to be the safest. It's because if they're outside, they might get shot. So they don't have anywhere to go. Uh, you know, a lot of these, there were, there were the one at his school. I remember the teacher said, well, we used to go on these field trips. We'd walk around the block. She quit doing that because the, the corner store got held up. So, you know, it, it begins when these kids are, you know, they become aware of these environments when they're two years old, three years old, that, oh, you know, outside is dangerous. Uh, I have nowhere to go. And that we, there's that built-in desperation very, very early on that then those kids have to overcome, right? It's an obstacle. It's a built-in obstacle that they're then asked to overcome. But on the outside, societally, we just expect because we find the anecdotal stories of somebody making it. And it's like, why aren't you all like this? Why didn't you all uh, respond the way that this kid did? And it's such an unreasonable expectation. So we, we absolutely need to invest in, in these communities. And I'm hopeful that you know, President Biden has announced this $5 billion in uh, community violence intervention. And some of that needs to go, not just, it needs to go even sort of farther back, right down that upstream, as you said, yeah, to exactly. stop it before it starts. I couldn't agree more. I, I'm going to hone in on that, on that, um, because that, um, Tayshawn, when they, when you talk about this, that if I grow up, which when I read that, it, it lit, again, it just took my breath away in terms of tr trying to wrap my head around what that must be like, both for a child to not feel like they're, th that they may make it to adulthood, yeah. but also for his mother to, to know that that is hers. And, and she does, she actively, you talk about uh, Tayshawn's mother at various points, tells him about the gun violence that's happening yeah. in his community. And she does it to help because she feels like that is how she's going to help keep him safe and keep yeah. him away from gunfire and gun violence. And she says, I'm, I'm going to misquote this a little bit, but something along the lines of, you know, you're just feeling angry or frustrated or what happens. And it, it all takes, as you, I think you said 12 seconds and then that's all it takes. And then you have these moments. And so, um, so I, I, I think a lot about that. One of the things I was thinking as I was reading your book was, I wish we could send this to every single Congress, Congress person and have them read this because it's, yeah. I don't, 
I'm, I struggle a lot with how someone, how anyone could hear about a child living in this country. And, you know, my parents are immigrants came, you know, you, you think about the American dream and coming here and, and all that this country has to offer. And then you realize we are coexisting with this level of violence that so disproportionately impacts um, black and brown communities in particular. How do we, how do we have so many elected officials that seem to be so numb to this or so indifferent? I, I, I just struggle with that so much because even if that's not my child, it's still yeah. a child, right? And right. every parent, even if it's not your, how can you be a parent and not resonate with it? So I, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts around the D, how do we, how do we denum? <laughs> yeah. Word, but. Well, that was a big motivation to write the book this way and to cover the issue this way, because there is, if you write about adults uh, who are victims of gun violence in black and brown communities, there are big segments of this country and lawmakers in this country who will be dismissive and find a way to blame the victim is they'll say, well, I was hanging out with the wrong people or was dealing drugs or, you know, they'll find something should have moved out, should have gotten a better job. The list is so long. And the truth is you cannot blame a child. You cannot say, Tyshawn, you're in second grade. It's your fault that your dad is dead. It's your fault that you have to hide behind your bed from gun violence. Uh, you can't say that. No one, no reasonable, rational person can say that. So that's one reason that I wrote it this way is to say that, you know, these are blameless victims of this crisis. I think though, that there are uh, many, many lawmakers who uh, don't even acknowledge that this is the reality. Is they, they, so I think that's step one is waking them up and, and forcing them to acknowledge the reality. Because I think I don't think any decent human, empathetic human could say, if they did recognize this reality, could say that this is acceptable in the richest country on earth. Uh, so, you know, I think the way to do that is to tell very human, intimate stories and then wrap data into that to say that, you know, here's, here's this kid's, Tyshawn's wrenching story of loss and trauma and pain and anger and depression, and then say, oh, by the way, he represents millions of children in your country. He is in no way unique. And I think that is, it's hard to turn your back on that, but it begins with acknowledging Tyshawn's existence, you know, and I think, you know, the media has to do a better job, I think, of covering those stories. There's, there's so much racism built into the way that we uh, cover and legislate gun violence. Uh, we care so much about the mass shootings that represent this just tiny fraction of of gun violence in America. And you know, when the, the, I remember after the Boulder shooting, you know, I tweeted, "Hey, I'm glad we all suddenly care about gun violence again." But 2020 was the worst year in modern American history, right? It's like, and but those were those were mostly victims in in places like Chicago and St. Louis and Washington and Baltimore where, you know, people just don't care as much. And that should be unacceptable, especially to the lawmakers in charge of those places. You know, we have to say that we care about the Taishans in the world, and it's unacceptable for him to have this much of a disadvantage uh, in life. We have to start with that. So, but I think the way to do that is to make people care about individuals, you know, is make them care about that one kid and then 
put that kid into this larger context, which is really the whole idea of the book is to say, here's a couple of kids, but what they represent is so much bigger than that. One of the ways I think you do this really beautifully in your writing is you juxtapose the innocence of childhood right alongside the starkness of the brutality of this kind of gun violence. And I'm, there's many examples in the book. I think there's a maybe Taishan was like rapping about Doritos or something. Right. I, I, yeah. There was something I remember reading and I was, I just, and I, and I, I appreciate that so much mostly because it also underscores that it's not enough for children to be in spaces that are free from violence, although that is part of it, but that they should also be in spaces where schools, for example, that are also environments where, where they will thrive. And that, yes. that, that, component also feels really important sort of in the way we we talk about it's not enough to be disease free but we want we think about well-being or we think about other things so I I really loved that um, in the book that that was sort of a, a theme that you wove through each of the chapters so let's talk a little bit about access to firearms and let's talk a little bit about why that is such a critical part of the prevention the prevention of this issue and Maybe we can start by talking about, and you mentioned, for example, Chicago, Baltimore. There, Chicago, for example, is in a state with fairly strict gun laws, right? right. They're sort of the often thing we see going around on Twitter and what have you after a shooting is see those gun laws don't work. Right. What I always tell people, well, you forget where Chicago is located. It's a 30 minute drive over to Indianapolis, right? Yes. So can you share with our viewers a little bit about why gun safety measures at the federal level are so important and why Biden, President Biden having a, a saint talking about this matters so much in this moment. Right. You know, to your exact point, we, we live in a country with open borders. You know, uh, people talk all the time. Well, you know, D.C. is a great example. They say, well, these, you know, it has the strictest gun laws in the country, but there's all this gun violence. Clearly, the gun laws don't work. Well, that's ludicrous because for decades you could just drive to Virginia, uh, literally 10 minutes away, go to a gun show, buy as many guns as you wanted, bring those guns back to D.C. and sell them for a much higher price uh, for then people to use uh, to kill each other. So, you know, the, the, the gun laws in one place are only as good as the gun laws everywhere around that place. The, you know, much of the book gets into this idea of uh, safe storage and child access safety laws, which uh, really should not be a partisan thing at all. You know, this is not a law that would uh, deprive a responsible law-abiding gun owner of owning as many weapons as they wanted. These laws basically just say that you have to be responsible with the gun you have. And if your negligence uh, leads a child to get access to that weapon and to hurt themselves or someone else, uh, we can hold you criminally liable for your negligence. Much of that is really just about education because there's a, a huge faction of gun owners in America who are under this fatal misconception that you can educate a child out of making a bad decision with a gun. Uh, you know, so the, the book, uh, gets into that, you know, just a handful of bits of legislation, but that are based in evidence. There's overwhelming evidence that these specific laws uh, really make a difference. And that's why, to your point about President Biden talking about this and Congress debating these laws, 
they matter because of that, this idea that, you know, the gun laws in, in D.C. or Chicago or St. Louis, uh, they're only so effective if the laws in everywhere, you know, the states all around them are less effective because, again, you can just I, I remember talking to this uh, former drug dealer in, in Washington who said that he would routinely go to gun shows. There wouldn't be any sort of background check. Uh, he got uh, he got a fully automatic weapon in Virginia that he then brought back to D.C. Uh, you know, and this is just over the river. Right. So it's so unreasonable, this argument. Well, those gun laws clearly don't work. They clearly don't work. Well, that's just absurd, because if gun laws uh, didn't work and maybe this is maybe the best argument for universal background checks is if they didn't work, then people in New York uh, would not drive to Georgia to stock up on guns where the gun laws are much weaker and then drive back. No one wants to drive on I-95 all the way down and back for any reason, but they have to do that to get guns at cheaper prices through straw purchasers or through uh, these gun shows that they then sell for many, many times uh, a higher price in, in Chicago or New York. So, you know, it does some of this to make really significant change does have to happen at the federal level. Yeah, and my understanding is that there's by and large quite a bit of public support for most of these kinds of efforts, which are not infringing on firearm ownership, um, but rather allowing us to coexist safely with, I think you mentioned a number earlier, 400 million firearms that right. are currently in circulation. Do you think that there is a world in which we can coexist safely? I think about this a lot. Like, are we, is this a Sisyphean task for us to be thinking about this prevention? Um, are we, is there, is there hope <laughs> in that way? You know, we are, uh, not in, without really dramatic change. We're not going to go from 43,000 in 2020 to zero by 2025. Um, that's not going to happen because we do have those 400 million plus guns. But I think we could go from 43,000 to maybe 30 or 28 or 25. And this is the argument I often make is, isn't that worth it? We're talking about 15, 20,000 lives. It doesn't have to be binary where it's either we have this rampant epidemic that is taking out tens of thousands of people every year or zero. We can accept reality that we have uh, and it just an insane number of guns in this country. We can accept that reality and then also say that, hey, there are small things we could do that would make huge changes. Uh, and I think that the, maybe the most obvious is for especially as it relates to kids is just to tell gun owners, hey, it's your responsibility. We're going to hold you uh, criminally liable for negligence with your firearms if they fall into the hands of kids. Since Columbine, more than half of the school shootings would never have happened if kids did not have access to guns. So, you know, if, if in 1999 we had snapped our fingers and said, hey, every gun owner, just lock up your guns. You don't have to get rid of them. You don't have to turn them in. You just have to lock them up so your kid doesn't get access. Again, we're talking about more than half of the school shootings since Columbine. I mean, in the span of this conversation, a kid will inevitably find a gun in a closet or a drawer. It will be loaded. They will fire it and harm themselves or someone else in their home. And hopefully no one dies, but it will inevitably happen. There was this one really incredible um, 
bit of research. A lot of great research has been done around this specific issue. And one that just I'll never forget uh, was they looked at uh, how to predict uh, juvenile suicide rates in certain states. And they found that the best way to predict that was not based on the number of children who have previously attempted suicide, but the proportion of homes in that state that had a gun. It just gets to this idea of access to lethal means. Uh, it, it is so dangerous for a child. It's dangerous enough for adults, but especially for, for children. Sometimes you'll get this argument, well, you know, what if someone breaks into my home? I need to have access to my gun. What if someone breaks into my home? Which, first of all, is incredibly rare and incredibly unlikely. But if we accept that, we say, okay, you really want to have your gun, uh, access to your gun. The best way certainly to store a gun, the safest way is to have a gun locked in one place, the ammunition somewhere else. But let's say for the sake of argument that you desperately need a gun with quick access, you can buy a $250 gun safe, a pistol safe, that is cheaper than the firearm you own. You can have it right next to your bed. If you, if you insist, you, have, you can have a, a loaded gun in it that you can put your fingerprint on, or you can put a three-digit or four-digit code in and have it in two seconds to stop the home invader. So there is no good argument out there that uh, uh, you know kids should have unfettered access to lethal weapons because we know their likelihood of death is so much greater uh, if that one variable exists in their home. Oh yeah. I mean, and also just, you know, this sort of speaks to, and you're highlighting this notion that we're assuming that having guns is associated with less crime, with less right. violence, when in fact the science shows us completely otherwise, um, right. that more guns is directly predictive of increased violence in various forms, as you've right. mentioned. So, um, you know, the, the science piece is there and, and, and certainly the research space is in very clear agreement about um, what access to firearms does. And as you're saying, the disproportionate impact on, on children. And, you know, it's again, just to underscore what your book talks about, it's not just the, the death and the injury, but it's the families that are forever changed by, and the communities that are forever changed by um, this kind of violence. What do you, and I know we're getting close to the end of our time here, um, but what do you say to, to people who say, you know, we had, we lost 20 children in, in the Sandy Hook shooting and nothing changed. So nothing will ever change. What do you say to that? Well, at first I, I, gently tell them that that's not true, is that, you know, a lot has changed since Sandy Hook. Uh, people often forget that Mom's Demand did not exist before Sandy Hook. Mom's Demand is now an extremely influential group in America. They, and, and most of the progress that has been made is at the state level. There have been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, new gun reform passed at the state level, and there have been a lot of sort of gun rights bills that have been defeated because mom's demand and those groups show up everywhere. You know, Giffords, uh, Gabby Giffords group, um, that did not exist before Sandy Hook. People often think that it was her own shooting that prompted her to form the organization, but it wasn't. It was, uh, it was the Sandy Hook shooting. The truth is that at the federal level, meaningful change is going to come down to just a few, a few Americans. That's really what it is. We think that America is just totally divided on this issue. And to your earlier point, America's not. Uh, uh, Americans overwhelmingly support universal background checks. That includes gun owners. 
Americans overwhelmingly support uh, child access prevention laws, including gun owners. Many of these laws are supported by most, if not a vast majority of gun owners. Where there is division is on Capitol Hill, and it's because really the NRA's influence is still really significant, is that uh, there are you know, senators and states where there are a lot of gun owners, and the last thing they want to be labeled is as a gun grabber, which is what the lobbyists would say. They would say, we're going to find somebody who runs to the right of you. We're going to label you as a gun grabber if you support universal background checks, and um, your career will be over. And they have plenty of, of uh, people to illustrate that, people who are no longer in office. So, but the truth is, you know, at least one piece of legislation that uh, President Obama pushed after Sandy Hook got 57 votes in the Senate. It was three votes from, from being in law. So that's inevitably the position we're going to be in again in the next four or eight years is just a handful of Americans on Capitol Hill, GOP senators, who say, you know, am I more afraid of suburban moms who are demanding change or am I more afraid of the lobbyists who are gonna label me a gun grabber. That's how close it is. I mean, it is so narrow. And, and, and again, it is not Americans who are divided. It's, it's politicians who are divided. I fully agree. I, um, I think, and we saw this come to fore over the past presidential election, certainly, but even prior to that, the, the I'm thinking about the 2018 midterm election, yeah. the, the importance of voting, of civic engagement in that way, um, and all the ways in which we have to address think about that set of processes that allow us to then move um, evidence-informed policy forward. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to ask you my last question. Um, maybe this is the hardest question. Um, and that is, what is, what is the one thing that you hope that, and I hope everyone has the chance to read this because this is, it was just, the book is so phenomenal, but what is the one thing that you hope people take away from your writing and the stories that you have shared? I think, you know, I kind of have a, a two part to that is in the first is that that people recognize that the scope of the crisis is so much bigger than almost any of us understood before is that it's uh, that millions of kids, literally millions of kids, it's, it is not overstatement to say that are affected in a really significant way from gun violence. Uh, in this country every day. But also, that is not hopeless at all. We can do things that are, are not unattainable. They won't cost billions of dollars. We can do things overnight that would either prevent uh, thousands of children from suffering in the way that Tyshawn and Ava have, or after they've suffered, we can do very simple things that can make their lives so much better. It is not hopeless. We often think about gun violence as this hopeless thing. And I think that often makes books like this hard to read is because people think, well, it'll never get better. It does not have to be that way. We're not going to go, again, we're not going to go from 43,000 to zero, but we can make a, a significant difference, a huge difference. And maybe one of these kids will be president one day. You know, we, you, you can't know what, you know, the, the benefit that you might be uh, uh, doing for society, just but from sparing one more kid of dealing with that level of trauma. So I think those are the two things, is that this is a much bigger problem, which is devastating and very sad uh, than we've realized. Uh, and it's not hopeless, we can do something about it. And I think that's really what the book delivers is here are simple ways that we can actually make life better in this country for these kids. 
Thank you so much, John. That was such a pleasure to hear about your work and to be in conversation with you. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a, a great conversation. This is good. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.